Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. This episode is all about the importance of diverse thinking. Matthew Said explains how the FA embraced diversity off the pitch, which contributed to success on it, and how the tragedy of 9-11 could have been avoided had the CIA been less collectively blind because of a lack of cultural diversity. And if you've ever thought that meetings at work are catastrophically inefficient, well, this episode will prove you correct. And we talk about echo chambers as well as Matthew's excellent book, Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking. Hi, Matthew. Morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me in. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'd describe you as one of the brightest men in sport. <laughs> You've got to say that with less irony. No. <laughs> now, you won't remember this, OK, but I remember meeting you many, many years ago. I think your table tennis career had just finished. I was struck by your sort of ferocious intellect that comes straight through. And, and also you're very interested in people. And I, remember, I really remember that. I think you just started writing for The Times. Wow, yeah. And so this would have been, what, 20, 20 years ago? And since then, you've, you've really sort of established yourself as someone who likes to look at sport and use it as a way to explore what it tells us about life. Well, definitely that was the approach that I took to writing about sport when I first started at the time. So I'd had this long table tennis career, which I enjoyed. Um, don't call it ping pong. Actually, you can call it ping pong. I don't mind that. Um, and then uh, I, I wrote Bounce in 2010, which really was a way of taking some of the themes of sport and broadening the lens and seeing what it might say about the world beyond sport. And then in Black Box Thinking, I really stepped outside sport altogether and tried to write a book on um, success and performance, and in particular, learning from mistakes. Difficult to do, um, but central to scientific method that you come up with a hypothesis and you're prepared to test it. And most importantly, revise the hypothesis in the light of what you learn. And I find that um, 
uh, sort of having the. It's been a really odd life from from the table tennis for so many years, and then to um, writing about sport as a generalist, and now writing about things beyond sport. It's been an unusual, quite idiosyncratic journey, um, but hopefully, it's been an interesting one. Yeah, and a diverse one, <clears throat> and it sort of it speaks to the the power of have getting breadth of experience. It does, and and actually, to a, in a funny kind of a way that is quite significant in my upbringing because my mother is uh, Welsh. She was born to a father who was a a coal miner in the Rhondda Valley in in South Wales and a mother who worked on a farm in North Wales. Um, She moved to London and at church in London in Bromley she met my father who was an immigrant from Pakistan, who came from quite a wealthy family back there, um, and who had converted from Islam to Christianity. So they both have quite unusual lives. And I've grown up with these two different cultures, these two very different personalities, and it's sort of given me an insight into the strengths and weaknesses that each culture brings. And I think that was perhaps something of a departure point for my next book, although really Rebel Ideas is about not just diversity of, of, of culture but diversity of thought. Absolutely. Um, but, yes, it, it, it all sort of comes into the mix. And we'll get into the diversity of thought. I, I just do want to give a nod to um, the fact that I do really enjoy your books and you've, you've mentioned them there, but uh, I actually keep a copy of The Greatest by my bed. Because it's it's the one of your books. It that, sends you to sleep when you, it's it's like the uh, it's it's, it's a, a real book. it's a real <laughs> eye shutter. No, it's it's one of the, it's one of those ones that you you can pick up anywhere. These little essays about I don't know, let's say the beauty of Federer or whatever. Yes. You know, I I find it absolutely uh, fantastic. I mean, that, that by the way is one of the things about sport. It does offer something of a canvas because with, with somebody like Federer and the aesthetics of Federer. You can really start to try and understand what constitutes beauty, absolutely, um, symmetry, elegance. But at the same time, there are great moral themes as well. These they're invented games. They're it's inherently trivial, but I think they do capture some broader themes that um, that are very interesting. I, absolutely. I always think of, for example, I, I do play tennis, and I know how anxious I can get during a key moment. Right. And like you say, trivial, irrelevant. No one gives a monkey's apart from me. Yet that anxiety I will feel in that moment would be the same anxiety I could feel in any other situation. So it's very true when they say sport is a metaphor for life. And okay, I think, yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be overdone. But you know, on the on the um, dealing with pressure, that was one of the big triggers for writing my first book. Was choking at the Olympic Games in Sydney. Yes, I remember you saying because yeah. I, I had been very good under pressure all my career. And then I get to perhaps the biggest competition of my career and live on BBC One. I knew my coach was watching and my parents back home and there were Union Jacks in the auditorium and I completely collapsed. I wanted to deconstruct why and how that had happened. What was happening in my brain, what was happening in my body, what was happening emotionally, how that fitted into our evolved psychology and what kind of remedial actions I might take in the future to prevent that happening again. And that was a very deep dive into one aspect of performance Mm. psychology. But you're right, there are themes that emerge from sport that have a much broader relevance. Yeah. Now... There are lots of things I would like to talk to you about, Matthew, not least your opposition to VAR, but we are here specifically to talk about diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Which is very much 
of the moment, isn't it? Some people aren't a huge fan of it, but I think it's important right from the outset to establish that we're talking about diversity, as you said, of opinion, diversity of experience, and, and not just arbitrary diversity. So just explain a bit about what you mean by diversity. Diversity has a bad reputation amongst many people. They think it's politically correct nonsense. Companies want my more diverse workforces. We're told that the cabinet should be diverse, that leadership groups should be diverse. And I went to a diversity conference and somebody asked a question. And it was, if you're hiring a sprint relay team, you want fast runners. You want to pick the four fastest runners. If you pick, And if they're all white and all men and all 25... It doesn't matter. If you decide you want to have a diverse group of people, you hire you know, a, 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 somebody of a different race, a different gender and a different age, and they are slower, the team will just lose the race. Surely we be, should be hiring people on the basis of their knowledge, ability, speed, not diversity. What interested me about that is the speaker was unable to answer. They sort of said, well, you know, a more diverse running team, they might enjoy it more, there might be some long-term uplift, but it lacked rigour. And I wanted to try and understand when and how diversity mattered, but to acknowledge the fact there are many circumstances in which certain types of diversity don't matter and can actively undermine performance. The most interesting thing I think I found from the book is when you optimise the right kind of diversity in the right kind of way, the uplift in what I call the collective intelligence of groups is monumental. Mm -hmm. And I think the next 50 years is going to be dominated by the competitive advantage that is established by those institutions, those governments, those societies that understand diversity, the science of diversity. And you give numerous examples within your book, and it's absolutely compelling. Some of them are mind-boggling, including the one about 9-11, which is um, at the outset of the book. And we'll, we'll get onto that. But I think a nice place to start is your own personal experience, with the FA, when you David Sheepshanks, yes. when he got in, in touch with you. Well, so David Sheepshanks is the chairman of the National Football Centre and also the technical advisory board. So this is a group of people who advise um, Dan Ashworth. He was the former technical director of the men's and women's national teams, Gareth Southgate, the men's head coach, on issues of performance, and the chief executive, Martin Glenn. So, so he said, would you like to join? I said, well, who's on the committee? He said, Dave Brailsford, who's a cycling coach. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stuart Lancaster, who's a rugby coach. Um, uh, Sue Campbell, who is an Olympic administrator. Um, Tracy Giles has joined, who is the head of training at Sandhurst Military Academy. Uh, Manoj Badal, uh, a British-Asian founder of tech startups. Um, and Graham Lesseau, who's a former footballer. Um, there may be one or two others that I've missed. And I thought, well, it was an interesting group, but my goodness, how are they going to advise on football? You know, not many of them know that much about football. And I was intrigued about how this would work. And obviously what people say in this meeting is is confidential. What I, what I can definitely say is what made it eye-opening is that almost everybody in the room knew lots of things that nobody else in the room knew about. Bringing experience in from outside. Absolutely. So Dave Brailsford unbelievably good on issues to do with using big data sets to improve performance. Stuart Lancaster, very, very good. He's a former school teacher mm. who went into rugby coaching. Um, Tracy Giles on mental fortitude and what they've learned about that in the army. 
And a number of the people who um, commented on this group said, you know, why do we want people who are expert in cycling or ping pong or you know, technological innovation to advise on football? Wouldn't it be better to have football experts like Harry Redknapp or yeah. Tony Pulis? Yeah. And what's clear is that if you took Pulis or Redknapp as individuals, they know much more about football than almost everybody on the technical advisory board. The problem is Redknapp and Pulis know many of the same things and most of what they know, Gareth Southgate already knows. So in other words, they've been socialised into the dominant assumptions and the implicit prejudices of English football, a way of playing, a way of coaching, a way of doing warm-ups and warm-downs. And so what tends to happen when you have homogeneity in a group is what's called mirroring. You say something that somebody else agrees with and you have your view reflected back to you and you start becoming increasingly confident about uh, a position that might be gravely wrong or at least incomplete. It's often you need to, in a complex domain, you need to hear people who have different views in order to cross-pollinate, to trigger new ideas and to create divergent thinking. And in the right circumstances, that can massively increase collective intelligence. And the formation of this group actually mm -hmm. did pay off. I think, look, I think the group has definitely helped. Um, yeah. We've had great feedback from the FA. Um, I wouldn't want to say that it's, it's not the, it's only, the, thing. the only thing. But, and but it's a factor. It, it, and we can see England are more popular, are more successful. And this broad church of opinions has definitely sort of contributed to that. And just, just one point I think is very interesting was the reaction to when it was announced that this group was coming together. And, and football writers were like... This is this is ridiculous. Yes. This is a nonsense. And even yourself, in your own head, yeah. you questioned it. I did. I did. I thought, what am I going to say? It's going to be of any value. You know, you often have that imposter syndrome when you walk into a meeting with people you admire very much. But it was pretty clear early on that some of the research I had done was pertinent to the discussion and wasn't known by other people in the group. One of the other guys in the group is Michael Barber, who was the head of Tony Blair's policy mm. delivery unit right. and he's very very good at understanding how talking is one thing but implementation is something different and making sure a strategy is implemented reviewing that strategy these things are useful and yes you're absolutely right i was genuinely shocked in those opening meetings about how effective these discussions were and how useful they were to the people in the room but you know what you said at the beginning something absolutely crucial which is diversity can't be arbitrary it has to be relevant you want people in the room who have views that are different but synergistic. So imagine if this group of people, you know, me, Badal, Brailsford, had been invited in to advise on DNA sequencing, right? We would have had a lot of diverse opinions, but they would have been completely unuseful. The information that we had amassed as individuals just wouldn't have impinged upon what I call the problem space. So engineering diversity is understanding the problem and then bringing people in who create coverage across the universe of useful ideas. Let's give another nice example as well, uh, which you talk about, which is around 9-11. Now, this was jaw-dropping um, and really illustrates the importance of diversity. You can pick it up, but let me just try and sum it up very briefly insofar as we know what happened on 9-11. And you argue in the book that basically a big problem was the lack of diversity in the CIA, because they were all from a homogenous group to some degree, they missed 
the potential threat from Osama bin Laden that a broader experience wouldn't have? So what's extraordinary about 9-11 is that there have been two opposed narratives that emerged at the time of the atrocity and have remained part of the big intelligence debate from then until now. On the one side are those who say the CIA missed obvious warning signs. On the other hand are those who say anti-terrorist organisations have a, a morass of information. There are loads of potential threats emerging from all over the world. Most of them don't mean a thing. It's just idle chat and so on. And if you investigated all of them, it would overwhelm your resources. Trying to find a plot before the event is extremely difficult. And that the CIA was staffed with outstanding people and that those people genuinely didn't see it because the situation was so complex. I think both of these narratives are wrong. And as you rightly say, every individual at the CIA was genuinely exceptional. I interviewed former analysts, former deputy directors. I looked in some detail at the recruitment processes. They were stellar people. They were employing one person for every 20,000 applicants. They were put through polygraph, um, intelligence tests, uh, verbal reasoning. Every single thing you could think of that would assess the individual capability of potential recruits. But here's the problem. If you hire lots of individually brilliant people who think in the same way, you're getting no uplift whatsoever. If you're building a house and there's one person who can lay 10 bricks an hour and another person who can lay 10 bricks an hour, you add them together and you double the productivity, you get 20 bricks an hour. If you have one person who comes up with 10 useful thoughts and somebody else who comes up with 10 useful thoughts, but they're the same thoughts because they think in the same way. You get no uplift in productivity. With cognitive work, you have to have diversity. And the problem at the CIA is that all of these individually brilliant analysts, almost all of them, were West Coast, Protestant, male, white, middle class. And it meant that they were using, because understanding threats is partly about leveraging your own experiences and your own insights to try and understand the nature of radicalization, um, how networks are created, um, how anger is fermented and so on. And they're coming at it in the same way. And they just couldn't make sense of what they were seeing. And so what I do in the book is I give a build up on the one hand, what the CIA was thinking and on the other, what a diverse group of people who had brought different lenses to the problem would have been thinking. And I hope it's clear. And I think I've sent it to a number of world-leading intelligence experts who have said that it is utterly clear and almost indisputable that the, it was the homogeneity at the CIA, not the level of individual ability of the analysts. It was the undermining of collective intelligence that destroyed their ability to make sense of the complex environment. Basically these guys just underestimated the threat because they're like, well, we, we're the most technologically advanced right. nation. Here's this guy hanging out in a cave yeah. with a long beard. What possible threat could he have? Exactly. And then eventually they hired someone down the track. They did learn their lesson um, who was able to, to understand and would have perhaps been able to understand at the time that here was a guy who was speaking in a way that was resonating right. with, with Muslims around the That's world. That's exactly it. I mean, that, 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 is, that is, is a, a large part of it. So when bin Laden announced his fatwa against the United States, he did it from a cave in Tora Bora with a beard going down to his waist, you know, wearing cloth underneath combat fatigues. And 
it just seemed incredible to the USA that somebody so primitive who would live in a cave could possibly be a threat to a technological giant like the world's biggest superpower. They were um, misled because what bin Laden was doing, of course, and he was very savvy from a PR point of view, he's obviously a fanatic, but very savvy from a PR point of view. The cave is where Muhammad uh, went during a particularly important part of his life, the, the, the so-called prophet. And the cave is of great religious significance to Muslims. Islamic art is replete with stalactites. And the um, clothing that bin Laden was wearing was modelled upon the prophet. The whole idea was to create an image in the eyes of potential recruits to his cause of a Muhammad-led rebuke to the West. None of this could be seen by the CIA because they were looking at it in the wrong way. Mm. You know, he um, issued pronouncements in poetry yes. of great significance in Persian culture, resonating with Muslims across the Middle East, but also um, some Muslim immigrants in Europe. And again, the CIA wrote it off as this mad mullah living in a cave. The sophistication of what was going on eluded the eyes of the CIA, not because they weren't looking at it, but because they couldn't make sense of what they were seeing. And you talk about, for example, in politics, the benefit. You don't want someone who's rubbish at politics. You want good politicians, but from a broad sort of church of experience. And you give this really easy way or a really simple way to understand it is the difference in the way that Americans and Japanese people yeah. can see the same picture, content v. context. Yes. So that was an important research uh, paper by um, Richard Nisbet, a social psychologist from the United States. And what became clear, I mean, this is true in a lot of different ways, but if you just think about context and objects, Japanese people tend to see the context in a particular picture. This particular paper was about underwater scenes. You know, they'll, they'll talk about the fish tank, they'll talk about the backdrop, they'll talk about the how the fish relate to each other within the fish tank, whereas Americans zoom in on the objects. They notice the colour of the fish, the dots on their bellies and so on. So if you bring Americans and Japanese... I mean, this is on average differences. There are obviously yeah. variation within these two demographic groups. Um, when you bring people together, they create a more comprehensive picture. Yeah. Um, and that is a metaphor for a much broader array of different ways that, for example, women and men can see things in different ways, um, people from a science and an arts background. And when you bring people together in an effective way, you get this uplift. We mentioned Japanese in America because culturally, Japanese are more sort of collective and mm -hmm. Americans are more individualistic. Mm -hmm. And that plays out it in does. seeing this image in separate ways. So it doesn't mean that they're any less intelligent either side, but they're, they're seeing things differently. So it's about picking up on the blind spots that someone else yeah. might, might miss. And those blind spots, I mean, that I think is, is perhaps the best way of framing the whole thing is that if you have a simple problem, you don't have a blind spot. You understand all of it. Two and two is four. With a complex problem, by definition, no one person has all of the information that is relevant to solving the problem. There's always going to be gaps in one's understanding. If you hire people who share the same gaps, you gain nothing additional from the additional hiring. You have a board of directors who think in the same way. They're adding nothing to each other except growing in false confidence about the fact that they think they know more than what they really do. Let me give you one method to, to sort of make it clear from a sort of mathematical point of view. 
One of the examples is economic forecasting. Now, this is not lacking topicality today. A lot of the debate over Brexit was about a forecast, an implicit forecast, about whether we'd be better off in or outside the European Union. The great thing about economic forecasting is that you get very rich data sets, which you can slice and dice to try and understand why some forecasts are good and why some are less good. Now, Jack Sol, um, a psychologist at Duke, took a group of 258 leading economists and he checked their historical forecasting record. And as you would expect, some were better than others. The best forecaster was about 5% better than the average forecaster, which th this isn't surprising so far. But then he took the top six forecasters, took their collective judgment, their average forecast, and compared it with the best forecaster. Now, in a running race, if you take the time of the fastest runner and compare it with the average time of the top six runners, what's faster? Well, it's self-evident, isn't it? The yeah. fastest yeah. runner is far has to be, unless yeah. it's a dead heat. Often significantly faster. Usain Bolt's time is faster than the average time of the field. That's a simple task. It's a linear task. Mm. Economic forecasting is extremely complex because no one economist knows everything there is to know about all the millions of decisions that people make when they're deciding whether to buy things and firms whether to produce things and how these interact in dynamic and um, complex ways. So each model is incomplete. But if you bring six models together, even if some are less accurate than others, you get an uplift in the collective intelligence. And what was extraordinary is the average of six wasn't 1% more accurate than the leading forecaster, or two, or five, or 10. It was 15% more accurate. That is a vast effect. And obviously, every model has blind spots and errors. But the thing about averaging is it removes the errors because some are higher than the actual turnout for inflation, some are a bit lower, and those on average tend to cancel out. In prediction tasks, this is called the wisdom of the crowds. What's interesting is that in problem-solving tasks or strategizing tasks or innovative tasks or creative tasks, I think diversity is even more powerful. Hmm. So if you took a... This is the other thing. If you took the top forecaster and you cloned that forecaster. So you'd have six brilliant forecasts. You, know, you clone Usain Bolt, you've got the best yeah. relay team that's ever existed. Yeah. You clone the, clone the top economic forecaster and put those in a team, they're no better than one top forecaster, mm -hmm. and they're much worse than a diverse group of six. To give a different example, um, well, you, you can, I mean, I've, I'm going off on one here, but the, the point I suppose that's making is that we tend to underestimate the significance of how different views can inform ours and how our views can inform theirs. And when I talk to one of the most influential economic forecasters in Britain and in Europe and said, who would you prefer to work with, people who, who think the same as you or people who think differently, his answer was people who think like me. If I've got a great model, I should be working with people who have the same model. That's, that, that logic is so intuitive, but also so false. Yeah. The importance of diverse views and opinions and bringing them together in the wild world in which we live, when problems are complex, is absolutely key. So let, let's say we're bringing lots of people together, okay? So, and we've got lots of difference of opinion. And then we stray into the slight problem of, of dominance hierarchies. Yes. Is this where basically... so? Dominance hierarchies, these are universal throughout throughout the world. You know, you get your alpha male hmm. or your alpha female. And, but people with a different view or, or, um, or another way of looking at things won't pipe up at important times 
again, you've got a blind spot, but it's because of this sort of dominance hierarchy. Yep. And you give a fantastic example of actually a plane crash mm. that happened for this exact reason. So just quickly yeah. sum that up. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So the, the thing we've been talking about so far is having the right people in the room. And often you don't because I haven't mentioned this homophily. Yes. We're attracted to people who think like us. It makes us feel smarter. So it's a common thing in recruiting. We start hiring. That's what happened at the CIA. The recruiters think they're being objective. They're hiring tons and tons of people who look and think like them. And they're becoming more and more collectively unintelligent. But say you do have diverse views in the room. You've, you've hired this wonderfully rich set of people yeah. who can help you to solve the problem and look for data that you might not have even considered looking for. Um, Which is step one. So step one right, we've done, right? Step one we've done. <laughs> step two. Step two is the social dynamic of how diverse groups interact. And you're absolutely right. Humans have a very highly attuned status psychology. And we share that with other primates. So this is very deep in our evolutionary history, that you have groups of people who decide to live together in some clan or, or tribe, and one person becomes the dominant, the alpha. And this makes sense in an evolutionary sense because when one faces a threat or needs to do something quickly, the alpha makes a decision. It's quite an obvious decision, a simple environment, and others immediately are galvanized around that decision. So it boosts speed and coordination. And we are left with this legacy of a highly attuned state of psychology to the extent that you can put five people in a room and watch them interact. And within seconds, a dominance hierarchy is being established. Moreover, people looking from the outside in who don't, don't know what's being said can accurately place people. So this is all happening sort of subconsciously. Unconsciously. unconsciously. It's happening unconsciously. And the gestures of the dominant person are more expansive. They take up more space. They tend to bare their teeth a little bit more. This is true in chimpanzees as well as in humans. And it's cross-cultural. So these dominance hierarchies are so deep in our evolutionary history that culture has not modified this effect in human groups across the world, across human psychological variation, dominance continues to exist. Now, what happens in a diverse group? We don't need a diverse group when the problem's simple. You just need one person making the decision. As we've agreed, you need a diverse group in a complex environment. But then dominance tends to shut down the expression of diverse ideas because people are so worried that the alpha will interpret a different opinion or a new idea as a threat to their status mm. and a punitive response from the dominant leader, particularly serious in firms where the dominant person may have a role in your promotion mm. and your pay, that we know that people tend to say not what they truly think, but what they think the alpha wants to hear. Now think of what that does to collective intelligence. What you're now doing is parroting the um, view of the leader or what you think the view of the leader might be. And it shrinks. Lee Thompson, who's done all of the empirical work on meetings, says that meetings predict bad outcomes more powerfully than smoking predicts cancer. So she's done loads of um, lab experiments, but you can also see this in the field. And you mentioned a bit earlier um, a plane crash, United Airlines 173. And this was a plane that flew out of Denver, and it was going to Portland in Oregon. And as it came in on the final approach, the pilot pulls the lever to lower the landing gear. Um, and normally there's a smooth descent of the wheels and you hear it, don't you, in the yeah. cabin. But this time there's a loud bang, the plane deviates to the left and a light that should have illuminated on the dashboard to show the landing gear is down and secure hasn't illuminated. So they're like, are the wheels down? 
So the pilot puts this plane into a holding pattern above suburban Portland. They're trying to troubleshoot the problem. And they do all the sensible things. You know, they check whether the bolts above the wings have shot up. That often shows that that is supposed to show that the wheels are down. The bolts are up. Good news. But they're still not 100% sure. So they phone the um, United, uh, the uh, control centre to explain what's happened. And the control centre said, well, we think the wheels are down, but we're not sure either. And they're still in this holding pattern. But at this point, another problem has come into play, which is that the plane is running out of fuel. Now, the engineer knows this because he has the gauge in front of him. But the culture in aviation in the 1970s was extremely hierarchical. The captain was positioned as the omniscient alpha, the big cheese, the person with the most knowledge. And they did have the most knowledge. But in a rapidly changing situation with lots of things happening at the same time, you need to have the knowledge and the perception of everybody in the crew. And the engineer who should have said, we need to land the plane now, even without the wheels, there's a risk, but at least we'll be down. You, m most planes that land without wheels cause no loss of life, but there's a risk. We need to get it down. Otherwise, but we know from the cockpit voice recorder that he doesn't challenge the captain because if he had said to the captain, we're running out of fuel, the implication might have been that the captain didn't know. That might have been insulting. Unconsciously, the engineer softened what he said, which was, we're kind of getting low on fuel here, hoping the captain would pick up on the hint. And the plane crashed and the engineer died. Um, and this plays out all the time, I think, in human groups. The environment is not safe for people to speak up. The environment needs to be safe so that people can say what they truly think. The leader still makes a decision, but the leader is much more thoroughly informed about the decision they need to take when people in the room feel they can say what they truly think yeah. rather than what they think the leader wants to hear. And Lee Thompson has shown that this again leads to a massive change in the social dynamics of a group. By the way, having it safe doesn't mean that it's soft you know you say you're challenged it should be robust but you're not gonna be shunned or punished correct correct yeah. it's the punitive sanctions from alpha males who interpret any difference of opinion as a threat that shuts down the collective intelligence of groups as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. It's a punitive sanctions from alpha males who interpret any difference of opinion as a threat that shuts down the collective intelligence of groups. 
And it's interesting in meetings, you talk about how basically if, if the alpha, let's say, or the manager starts speaking first, basically everyone will just sort of parrot mm. and, and and you get left with right. basically a load of old nonsense. Right. And, and there are some organisations who are starting to come up with ways to combat this, whether that be writing, everyone getting there to write an idea yeah. down and stick it on a wall without their name or starting with the most junior person. Mm-hmm. And getting them to speak round. There are ways round this, aren't there? There are. So, I mean, the, the best way round it is a real culture which respects diversity, but without ever losing the robustness that you need in group discussion. That is important. But there are certain mechanisms, like at Amazon, for example, the person who proposes the agenda item writes it down in narrative form, you know, with adverbs and nouns, which makes it a, an easier read, easier to digest. Then people start the meeting just reading the memo in silence. Because what normally happens is you have a PowerPoint presentation where you're going through it and then everyone's sort of nodding along and they're trying to come up with arguments that agree with the person speaking. When you have a chance to read these memos, you bring your independent perspectives to bear before discussion starts. And then they speak in, well, the senior person in the room speaks last. Mm. And that's a good way of protecting diversity of thought. You mentioned brain writing, much more effective than brainstorming. And brainstorming People will often start to echo the, the d- dominant people in the room. The other thing with brainstorming is that half the people in the room, so if it's a six-person group, only three people will be speaking for like 75 to 80% of the time. The introverts often get squeezed out. With brain writing, where you write your ideas down, everyone gets a chance to write yeah. it down. You pin it on a notice board, and people are voting on the ideas rather than the status of the person proposing yeah. it. You get a meritocracy of ideas. Yeah. So the dominance hierarchy is basically taken out of the exactly. equation and therefore the good ideas come forward. It's worth saying, though, and I, you know, I throw this in, dominance is really useful when you've made the decision. Yeah. You know, once you've come up, you've used the, the brilliant brains in a room to come up with a decision and now you're executing, you want dominance. When you're actually going out there and doing something, you don't want somebody to say, oh, yeah, you know, we need to do something else. You've made the decision. You're now in the execution phase. Dominance can work a lot. Yeah. And I think what great leaders do is they pivot between dominance and what I call a prestige approach, which, which safeguards the ideas and perspectives of the people in the team, and then you get a much better result. Just a quick word on that. The prestige, let me see if I've got this right. So the prestige part of the dominance hierarchy. So this is, if we talk about it in leader terms, someone who's willing to come in and lead, but they'll say it from the point of view as, I don't have all the answers. I want to hear your view. I will then take the decision, but it's being open to that. And it's kind of, an, it sounds like it's, it's almost, almost an evolved leadership. And we see it in the world right now. So the Kiwi Prime Minister, she is an example of that. Absolutely. And then we have the dominance hierarchy. We see lots of strong men, for example, in the world right now who are like, I have all the answers. Right. And, and these are two strands of the dominance hierarchy. And the fact that this prestige hierarchy is rising, to me, it's almost a sign of human evolution. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't want to sort of get uh, bore you at all with the anthropology here, but I mentioned that dominance hierarchies are a universal psychological phenomenon in human groups. There is another state of psychology that we uniquely have and no other primates have, and that's a prestige hierarchy. And it was an anthropologist working in the Andaman Islands who noticed that people were getting a great deal of respect and had high status, but were deploying no dominance behaviours whatsoever. And he said that what they tend to have is wisdom, good nature, they're great listeners, and people 
defer to them because they admire them. They listen to them. Now, with the dominance group, the, you must look at the videos on this. With the dominance hierarchy, people often avoid looking at the dominant leader. There's an element of fear there. There's fear because the dominant person has established rank through the deployment of a certain type of fear. Um, you see it the same in, in chimpanzees. Um, I mean, actually, the bearing of the teeth and the gesticulating, you see that in offices up and down the country. Um, but with prestigious leaders, and it turns out that this is cross-culturally true. People can attain power and influence through wisdom. And and so they talk. And again, you can put people in a room and people can, can note the prestigious people just through the body language and the gestures. And it's a completely different... So exactly that. In a complex environment, you want prestigious leaders who, like the New Zealand Prime Minister, are capable of listening, are capable of inspiring, are not so arrogant that they think that they know everything, but also have a great deal of wisdom themselves. And that's why people want to listen to them. And that does create a much more safe environment for diversity of thought. Yes, slightly concerningly, during uncertain times, which we are in, people resort to the safety of, of handing control yeah. over often to the the alpha, the strongman type. And we are seeing this in the world, left, right and centre at the moment. You can think of so many examples of that strongman type. And from that, that leads me quickly into echo chambers. Now, this was absolutely fascinating. We all see this, don't we? And we see on social media, you see you know left and right and how people are entrenched in their positions. If you can explain this in terms of how the echo chamber works and also how we can extricate ourselves from it. And you give a beautiful example of the white nationalists, which was one of the most uplifting stories I've ever heard, I think. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, so, so I mean, the echo chamber, I think, is, is very interesting in that we live in a highly interconnected world. We therefore have access at the click of a mouse to diverse opinions and thoughts and information and data. The internet has created this hyperspace, which you would have thought has increased the benefits of diversity. And yet we have this deep irony, which is groups of people on the internet who seem to inhabit echo chambers, where they're surrounded, their local part of this hyperspace is people who think the same as them, often in an ideological sense. And this is exacerbated often by the filter bubble where Google invisibly personalised searches to give you mm. more of what you already think. And in our Facebook crowd, we're surrounded Twitter. by people who think... Exactly. Now, the academics on this argue in two different ways. I mean, some of them think that we do... that A lot of people have distorted exposure. They're only exposed to people who agree with them. There are other academics who say, actually, people do tend to dip out of their echo chamber from time to time, and they do get exposed to alternative views. What both groups agree is what happens when one is exposed to other views. And you would have thought that when you're exposed to other views, your views would become more nuanced, you might become more balanced. But what happens is people tend to become more polarised. Mm. And I think the explanation for this, based on some brilliant work by C. Tyan Guyan, a philosopher from the United States, from Utah, is that what happens in an echo chamber is people do not trust mm. anybody outside the echo chamber. In other words, these places have... Are places of strategic discrediting. So you mentioned Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio host. He doesn't stop his listeners engaging with the New York Times. He discredits the New York Times. They're fake news. They're a liberal media establishment who don't want you to hear the truth. Creates a sense of conspiracy against the in-group 
And then whenever you hear anyone criticising Rush Limbaugh, you hear somebody showing evidence that his mm. view is wrong, it seems to confirm the conspiracy. Yeah. The clinching argument is that in this complex world, belief formation requires some level of trust. Because you wouldn't know, and I wouldn't know, a good biologist from a bad biologist, a good nuclear scientist from a bad nuclear scientist, a good epidemiologist from a bad one. You have to take certain things on trust. Even academics take on trust the results of other experiments from other academics, and they use that as inputs. So, you know, we rely on this vastly complicated social structure of trust. That leaves us slightly vulnerable. Echo chambers exploit this epistemic vulnerability by discrediting all sources outside the in-group. Mm. So it means that you don't engage with other data. You reject it on contact. This creates incredibly cohesive in-group phenomena. And I think that's one of the big problems in our world today. Fake news, we see it. Right. It's, not about, it's not about what someone's saying. It's fake because of where it comes from. Exactly. So the news is fake because it's from the BBC right. or from NBC right. Right. or whoever else. And it's not about left and right. There are echo chambers on the left. There are yeah. echo chambers yeah. on the right. There are echo chambers in diet, in breastfeeding. And Guyan said something like, whenever a core part of the cohesion of an in-group is based on discrediting all other sources of information, that's an echo chamber. Yes, echo chambers. We, know, we can see how sort of destructive they are at the moment. You know, everyone's so entrenched in their positions. Yet, as I said, there was this really uplifting example yeah. yes. of how it can actually be dismantled. So Derek Black, son of Don Black, who mm. is a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, one of the leading white supremacists, his mother, Chloe, I think, mm. uh, was the first wife of David Duke, the leader of white supremacism yeah. in the United States, um, and who was best man at her second marriage to Don. They have this child, Derek Black, who, with the age of six years old, writing material yeah. on white supremacism. Yeah. The great white hope of the white The great nationalism. white hope of white... The absolute great white hope. He becomes a major voice within that community. Um, he uh, came up with the, with the phrase white genocide, that we're, you know, our culture's being mm. destroyed by these immigrants... And David Duke regarded him as the future successor of the movement. And he was not in a, in a cult. You know, he watched television programs on liberal politics. He was exposed to other views on the Internet. He was exposed to them, but he didn't listen to them. He thought that all of these people were part of a liberal media conspiracy. And it's only when he got to university and he met this guy, Matthew Stevenson, who was a Jew and established a level of trust with Matthew that he began to actually read with an open mind the evidence against the ideology of white supremacism. So he genuinely believed that black people were congenitally criminal compared to whites, less intelligent, that there were crisp biological differences between the races, a whole range of things that you'll read on any white supremacist website. He hadn't really properly engaged with the statistical and scientific evidence that repudiates it. As soon as he did so, his views began to moderate and mm. he eventually came out of his 
white supremacist movement. It led to great ructions with his relationship with his mum and dad. But he now, on his Twitter handle, it's something like unexpected advocate for anti-racism. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. It is. And there was a really interesting lesson, I thought, in this story as well, because Derek kept his politics when he got to university under wraps and then it exploded out, not of his own volition. And everyone then suddenly turned on Derek and wanted to beat him up and he was shunned, which again further exacerbated his position. But Matthew, who had grown up, I think his mum was an alcoholic, so she grew up in, he saw AA and he talks about how he saw how people could change. Despite this guy's vile opinions, he reached out to him, offered him trust, did it gently and sort of brought him in that way. And I think that speaks volumes about the way to combat it. It's not the way we see on Twitter by going hell for leather. You see it with, in this country, Brexiteers and Remainers. It's a constant slang, slang yes. match, same in Democrats and Republicans. Yep. Actually, there needs to be a middle ground where it's like you can accommodate the fact that someone else's views, might, you might find them abhorrent. But until you can meet in the middle, form this basis of trust, there's absolutely no way of getting past and it. By the way, I, I agree with that, except for one bit. I think that the exchanges can be robust. I think that you can disagree. The key thing is one listens mm. to what the other side is saying, probes the evidence that they're providing, and decides whether or not on the basis of the evidence it is credible or not not rejecting it just because of the identity of the person who is exactly, proposing. Exactly, that's it, isn't this it? Is a, this is a disaster because, you know, there are you know, slightly boring formal theories about why democracies are more intelligent than oligarchies and dictatorships. And the reason largely, and, and free markets work quite well because you've got all these different views, these diffuse information that is integrated into a market price, for example, or into a decision by a democratic representative body. But it, the presupposition for this is listening to what other people are saying and probing their arguments. I do worry a lot um, that Twitter, social media and the broader political culture is undermining the intelligence of democracies. I think this is, this is quite worrying. People rush to labels, don't they? And it becomes personal right. yep. and generalised the yes. way that people sort of insult each other. And, and you get points within your own team, mm. whether that be Brexiteers, Remainers, Democrats, Republicans, whoever, by you know, chopping someone else off at the knees with a kind of, you are this and, you know, typical of your group. Yeah. Everyone else, like, way, yeah. and, the, and the groups become yes. ever more split. Yes. And it is a big concern. And the fascinating thing is partisanship, you know, having two political parties, that's so... Look, you've described it brilliantly. I worry about this a lot. And I think it's worth every now and again thinking to oneself, am I now drifting into an echo chamber? Yeah. Am I contributing to the am problem? Am I contributing to the problem? What? How am I behaving in this context? Yeah. Have I really engaged with a different opinion? Have I looked at evidence? You know, have I engaged with evidence that I find challenging? Have I properly probed the weaknesses of my own argument? These things are wonderfully liberating things. By the way, for businesses, if businesses don't do it, they go bankrupt. Mm. In a really highly competitive environment like free markets, that can be a disaster if you don't have that open-mindedness. And there's, you know, there's some good, the active open-mindedness scale is a, is a very strong predictor of the ability to spot genuine fake news yeah. and to see evidence for what it is rather than what you want it to be. I know you ran to be an MP on one occasion. Now, do you know what I would do? A thought that popped in my head when I was reading this was in the House of Commons, so we've got 
Labour on one side, the Tories on the other, and they sit there and they uh, sling volleys at each other uh, across the dispatch box. Would I would get them all to sit together next to each other because clearly it's not like Labour have all the ideas and the Tories have all the ideas. What you have illustrated is that if, if they could come in the middle and meet in a less adversarial fashion, we'd be far better at dealing with the problems in society. Mm. But just as in Twitter... These people, well, the politicians, go at each other, and, and it's point scoring. And you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am on yeah, Twitter. I, am. I, I don't. I've stopped. I don't post any kind of opinions. It's almost addictive. You can mm. become addicted to getting involved with these flashpoints, and you know it, that, that feeling of irritation at other people or anger yeah. is is addictive. And I think the other the other thing that struck me about Twitter, um, I came to it reasonably late, is that when you get four or five nice tweets things that are interesting engaging and then you get that one person <laughs> who absolutely goes for the jugular you know mm. swears at you and it's often that that you'll remember more than Definitely. the uplifting thing so i think i think twitter I mean, I, I, funnily enough i wrote a, a you know, I, wrote, I wrote a book for children last year and I, I do think quite a lot about this i might write another one about how young people can engage with the digital world because you want to take advantage of all of these opportunities that are afforded by the digital world um but i think there are risks attached to it definitely right let's move on uh, the last couple of bits so we've established about the importance of diversity, about being aware of the dominance hierarchy, the danger of echo chambers, and a way to illustrate the power of diversity, bring in different ideas. And you give, there's a number of sporting examples where the outsider view has been brought into the insider view. I'll just say a couple. So for example, Novak Djokovic, a man who slides and stretches on a tennis court, even on a hard court, in a way that no one else has ever done and it gives him an advantage. You say that came from the fact that he grew up skiing, using F1 technology and bobsleigh. So, yeah, yeah bringing ideas in from outside. Yes. Well, funnily enough, I spoke to a young journalist, freelancer called Tim Wigmore, and he noticed that a lot of the, the technical innovations of sport were people bringing ideas from a different sport to a sport where it hadn't been tried before, like the reverse sweep in cricket, Novak Djokovic sliding in skiing. And I started looking at innovation more generally. And it turns out, I mean, it is, it is incredible, really. I hadn't properly noticed this before, but there are two types of innovation. There's incremental innovation, where you make little tweaks to an existing technology, you know, like James Dyson changing the size and dimensionality of his cyclone, for example. In sport, you can sometimes call that marginal gains. Yeah. Then you get this, what are called recombinant innovations, where you bring two ideas from completely different worlds or conceptual categories and merge them. So Matt Ridley calls this ideas having sex, like a wheel and a suitcase, wheeled suitcase. Most digital technologies are recombinant. What's interesting is that the balance between incremental and recombinant innovation has started to tilt dramatically. So scientific papers... 50 years ago, typically were written by individuals who were experts in one category, one subject. The vast majority of hit scientific papers today are bringing insights from two traditionally different fields together. So economics and psychology or anthropology and evolutionary biology. You suddenly get... But it's the same in, the, in technology. You're getting most of the patents today cut across traditional categories and codes. 
And I think the reason for mathematical um, is it's like the difference between natural selection and sexual reproduction in biological evolution. You know, natural selection, you get a mutation um, to a particular organism that's tested in the next generation through survival and reproduction, and you get these small changes that cascade through. But when you get sexual reproduction, you get the genes in one animal and the genes in a different animal coming together. That can lead to a massive uplift in cumulative complexity. And I think we're seeing this in the scientific papers. We're seeing it in the patent catalogue. And as you rightly see, we're beginning to see it in sport, where the British Olympic team, I think, has done very well, in part because it brought experts from industry and from academia to help athletes run faster or hit balls more effectively and so on. There are lots of organisations that get very inward-looking. And even within organisations, like I wouldn't want to slag off the, the BBC, BBC. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be a little bit siloed. Right. But actually, it's all about being open to ideas from the outside, swapping ideas. That's how you make progress. And you mentioned there about bringing things in from the outside. So the wheels on the suitcases, and actually that was laughed out of all the boardrooms, wasn't it, at first? It was this absolutely absurd idea, but was spot on. And I think as well of Apple, the reason iPhones were so beautiful was because Steve Jobs had done a calligraphy class. So it it's all about being open-minded and open to a diversity of opinions and, and welcoming them. Absolutely. And, and you know, you want to have core expertise. I wouldn't want to underestimate the significance of that. Having depth in a particular area is a good thing. But often having the ability to step outside that area and to look at it from the outside rather than just looking at the superficial changes you might make to the interior, that I think is significant. And that's borne out by Nobel Prize winners and a whole range of other kinds of evidence. Um, I remember speaking to a group of senior public servants. Right. And they were grappling with issues to do with big data. And I asked them whether they had ever asked other industries and other companies and tech companies how they dealt with these problems. And they said, no. In other words, there's this whole world outside this tiny group. And they were just talking about it internally. They hadn't reached out to see what else was going on beyond their milieu. And I think it's very easy to become siloed, mm. to become to get ever deeper into a narrow sliver of knowledge. Remember, the categories we impose on the world are arbitrary. You know, Aristotle came up with the subjects, you know, biology and physics. But the world doesn't obey these constraints. And we can find insights in all sorts of different ways. And I think one needs to have some level of strategic wandering, strategic exploration in order to come up with the really great innovations, the non-linear innovations, I think, require that. Okay. Right, we've covered a lot of ground, Matthew. How would you sum up your work in this area if you had to distill it down to some sort of key points and also some key things that people can put into practice? So I think that the key thing is just to be aware of this phenomenon of homophily, wanting to surround oneself with people who think like me. It's wonderfully reassuring, it's validating, it makes you feel smarter, but it makes the group less smart. And recognising, there's something John Cleese said, that everyone has theories, the dangerous people are those who are unaware of their own theories. That's to say their theories are largely unconscious. And I think that's worth bearing in mind, that when we filter the world when we pass the world, when we make sense of the world, we're bringing to bear a whole range of assumptions and ideas and often 
implicit views that go untested by ourselves. By surrounding ourselves with people who are different, those implicit views get tested. Our blind spots get plugged. And I think if we can create those groups within institutions, within governments and within corporations, we'll get much higher levels of collective intelligence. There's things that you and I have never thought of that could improve our work, that it could improve our lives. Isn't it time to talk to people who are a bit different who might provide us with some of those ideas? Matthew, it's been an absolute joy having you on. Like I said, uh, I love all your books and I think this one is, I think you've raised the bar. I think this is the best yet. Thank you very much and I've loved being on it. It's been a, a wonderful chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. If you want to get in touch, please drop me a line via my website, simonmundy.com or on social media at Simon Mundy.